We are doing a little series looking at the Lord's Prayer, the great prayer of prayers. This great um, prayer is a response to the question that Jesus asked, teach us how to pray. But I think as we've been seeing already, this prayer is is not just a set of words. It's not like Jesus is giving his disciples a kind of mechanical set of words. He says, if you pray, every time you pray, you've got to pray these words. Really, each one of these prayers, each one of the statements inside these prayers is a kind of window, a window into a vein, a rich seam of prayer, a rich kind of part of what it means to really have friendship with God. And today I want to look at the great prayer, the invitation, your kingdom come. The call for the disciples of Christ to have a longing, a desire for the reign of Christ. That Christ would reign in our lives, in our community and in our world. This is the great uh, invitation that I want you to hear from Christ this morning. I will read to you then uh, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And the verse today that we're focusing on, I'm going to read it again, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I suspect for many of you, like we mentioned last week, these words are just words that you've heard so many times that they've lost all kind of meaning. On top of that, the idea of the kingdom is often quite a vague idea, quite a kind of insubstantial idea. We talk about the kingdom coming. What do we mean by that? What do we mean by Christ's kingdom? Well, actually, I think I want to suggest to you this is a, a really dominating theme. I think it's one of the most one of the most popular topics that Christ describes that talks about. And really what it describes, I think, is the great movement of history. The great movement of history of heaven coming down on the earth, of Christ's reign being established in all the earth. One writer described it as God's reign through God's people over God's place. God's reign over God's people over God's place. Or God's reign through God's people over God's place. And what you've got to see is really the great grand biblical narrative is of Christ establishing his kingdom, his kingdom growing, and one day his kingdom being established throughout all the earth. It is noticeable that right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, he begins his ministry with an announcement of the the nearness of the kingdom of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, or the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, actually, if you go right back to the Old Testament, you'll see the idea that 
God is king. God is sovereign. That is, that is the kind of dominating idea that threads all the way through God's creation, right from Adam and Eve to the people of Israel. They live under his kingdom, under his sovereignty. But, but one day, a day is coming when the great messianic king, the Messiah, would come and establish God's reign fully on this earth. And this is Christ saying, my kingdom is here. The king is here. And then, then what we see is a grand narrative that starts in the pages of the New Testament but goes on all the way through human history to, take, to say this great, uh, this small mustard seed of a kingdom, this, great, this uh, ragtag bunch of disciples of very little consequence and privilege and perhaps even a very little human ability, what starts as a mustard seed becomes the great tree in the garden. There's an explosion of the kingdom. And this is uh, how Jesus describes it to the disciples in Matthew uh, chapter 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. And the early church looked like a pretty small seed. A bunch of a few guys, not, some former prostitutes, tax collectors, not, you might say the scum of the earth, not particularly significant. Certainly, when you're hearing, when Jesus is saying these words, this feels very accurate description of, the, of his movement. So he said, it is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is the great grand sweep of human history that what begins as a tiny, almost insignificant movement in a Roman backwater explodes across the world. And despite setbacks and uh, all sorts of, you know, you'll know that the story of the church is not a perfect one, the kingdom of God has expanded. That as nations have come, have come to Christ, as different individuals, as the, as the church has grown throughout the world until one day Christ will return. That the kingdom will not just be um, seen in partial terms, the kingdom will be seen in its fullness. And this is the day we long for, the day we look forward to when Christ's kingdom is established on this earth. This is how uh, he describes it. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him every day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." This is the grand sweep of human history from mustard seed to the largest tree that dominates to seeing Christ reign fully on this earth where there'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying because Christ reigns in his fullness. This is the great movement of history and when Christians say, Lord, your kingdom come, we are joining in with that grand sweep. We are saying, Lord, bring your kingdom on this earth. Bring heaven to earth. This is more than just words. This is a posture. This is a, a sense of longing for the kingdom. What you'll see again and again in the Christian life is desire is more important, more significant than just ought. You know that feeling, ought. I ought better not have another cookie. I ought better not watch another episode. Ought doesn't feel very powerful. I don't know about you, but when I ought not to do things, often I still do them. 
See, ought is not really the, the, the great power in the Christian life. The great power in the Christian life is desire, is longing, is cultivating a heart of desire for good things, for Christ ultimately, and for all his purposes, and cultivating uh, an aversion, a dislike of everything that's not from him. That is the power in the Christian life. You'll see that again and again as you seek to apply that principle. And it's the same here with the kingdom. When Christ is calling his people to say, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, he's calling out of us a longing for his purposes to be established on this earth. Do you desire the reign of Christ? It's not, by the way, just a longing. It's also the very goal and purpose of your life of our life, of the people of God, to bring, to advance, to be part of his kingdom, establishing itself in all the world. And as I reflected on these verses, this great call to say with Christ, your kingdom come, I saw in my own heart, and I suspect in many of yours, that this is not the great cry of our hearts. That's where we've got to start. This is not the great cry of our hearts. We don't intuitively wake up in the morning and say, God, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come. And that's a problem. And I think there's a number of reasons why we cannot say with Christ, your kingdom come. The first is pretty simple, and it's that Christ may not be the king of your life. And I'm talking here to Christians here. You might say, well, of course he's the king of my life. I'm a Christian. But there's a very great danger of Christ playing a kind of superficial part of your life. Or maybe even worse than that, that you understand the Christian life to be a transaction at the cross. To say, well, I've, I've, I've prayed the prayer. I've, made, I've, I've received Christ's sacrifice. But there's no notion of kingdom in your life. There's no notion of Christ as the king. One writer described this phenomenon as vampire Christians. They say to Jesus, just give me a little bit of your blood. Just give me your, that forgiveness. Give me, a, it's a transaction. Give me what I want, but really I'm just going to live as I please. And Christ remains a kind of satellite at the edge of your life, the fringe of your life. He is not the king. And so if he's not really the king, If there's no sense of apprenticeship to Christ in your life, no sense that you are walking with him as his disciple, then it's very unlikely that you're going to then pray for his kingdom to come. That's the first reason. The second of which is quite an interesting one, and I I can relate to this years ago. I definitely think this was true of me. There's a sense to which sometimes Christians are waiting for heaven. We are waiting for heaven. It's a bit like I hate roller coasters. I genuinely have no desire to go on roller coasters. And when I go on a roller coaster, the only way I get through, if I'm doing it, because I'm friends with somebody who wants to go on a roller coaster, um, the only way I get through it is I basically say, I'm hanging on, closing my eyes, and, um, and I'm waiting for this to be end. I, I basically comfort myself with the knowledge that this ride will be over one day, one moment. I don't know how long it will be, but I know that this experience will come to an end. That is how Christians sometimes treat this world. We long for the day of heaven to come and we look forward to being raised with Christ, with him for eternity. And so we look at this earth as a kind of unnecessary diversion, a delay in the, in the kind of grand sweep of history. I'm looking forward to that day. And maybe earth just feels a bit dirty, feels a bit kind of unnecessary. And really I'm waiting for the heavenly things, really waiting for real life to begin. What we don't realize is that Christ begins eternal life with us now and actually the great trajectory of history is that heaven is coming on earth. 
That is the great story of human history, is that heaven is, will one day be totally established on this earth. This is how the book of Revelation describes it. Revelation chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth had passed, sorry, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And behold, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. See, the great story of history is heaven coming down onto the earth. It might be said, it's rather, it's not so much that we're trying to escape to heaven. Actually, the kingdom comes with heaven coming into your life now as a foretaste of that great heavenly reality. We're not waiting for heaven. Heaven has come to make its place in our lives right this moment. I think another reason why we don't really desire the kingdom, why we don't really long for Christ's kingdom to come, is because our understanding of the kingdom is too superficial. We think of the kingdom as the place where people recognize Christ as king. And that's absolutely right. That is the the kind of central idea of the kingdom. But what we don't realize is how different the kingdom looks to the kingdoms of this world. Christ told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If if it was, then my disciples would be violently overthrowing right now. They didn't do that. He's saying, no, my kingdom is radically different. That's why the great central event of Christ's kingship is, is when he is lifted up on the cross. That is Christ's enthronement as he's lifted up for all men to see him in his glory. He doesn't have a human golden crown. He has a crown of thorns. The great enthronement of this king is so different to every other kind of great enthronement as the king king we worship is the crucified king. Christ's kingdom is radically different to the worldly kingdoms. And so if Christ is king of our lives, the kingdom has come into our lives means that we should look radically different. Our vision of kingdom just says basically Jesus is Lord of my heart, but everything else stays the same. And that's far too small. If Jesus is Lord of our heart, then everything changes. We see this in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. This prayer is taken from. It's one great manifesto, one great vision for how the kingdom should look different. And I could, I could picture you all sorts of different things, but I think probably the idea that you should know first, centrally here, is the kingdom is the manifestation of the king. The kingdom is the manifestation of the king. So it's only right that the kingdom looks like Christ. If you're in the kingdom, you are to look like Christ. We as the people of God are to look like Christ as we manifest the kingdom. Love, purity, generosity, the mercy of Christ. These are the things that mark the culture of the kingdom. Look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I'll pick a few for you that just, just speak of this really radical cultural difference between the kingdom of Christ and the empires or the the normal cultural patterns of this world. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts, almost starts his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Saying the kingdom of people who are in the kingdom are marked by a radical humility No longer are they trying to make a name for themselves and establish uh, their own kingdoms. Instead, they have recognized a poverty of spirit, a sense of, I am a man or woman of unclean lips. 
And I recognize that this humility is the way into the kingdom. Not building a name for themselves, actually they're trying to honor each other. Or generosity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, describes uh, the, the importance of generosity in the Christian life. And he describes that those who are generous, those who are worshiping the king, no longer worship money. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It says those in the kingdom are not enslaved to financial accumulation. They're not just trying to hoard up wealth for themselves, but instead they're living a radically generous life, giving themselves their time and their talents away because they, have, they worship the living God. They don't worship financial accumulation or money. They are living lives of generosity. Or purity. The people of God who live in the kingdom of God are radically pure. This is what he says about lust. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The people of God are not enslaved to lustful desires. They know that lust or sexual immorality doesn't just kind of, just at the act level, it starts at the heart. And so they're seeking to walk in a purity of heart, seeking to destroy lust and seeking to have a heart of purity, of honoring the opposite sex, of living in radical purity. But go, yeah, go even further and say the people of God are marked by, the kingdom of God is marked by a radical love. Think about Christ's instructions to love your enemies. It says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He's saying, if you have received the kingdom into your life, Christ's other-centered love, Christ's sacrificial love has become the defining ethic of your life. Such that you don't hate your enemies anymore, you seek to love them because you worship a God who's put his character in you, the one who providentially loves and provides for his enemies. See how different the kingdom is? Why? Because it's a kingdom marked by a different king who's marked by perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect mercy, perfect love, perfect generosity, who gives himself away. And so when we see this great, beautiful vision of the kingdom, and we could go on, we could, talk, we could go through the Sermon on the Mount at length and see all the ways that Christ's kingdom differs from the empires of this world, suddenly, when we take that and compare it with our world, don't we see the great um, need, the great longing? Don't our hearts suddenly start to long to say, if these things were true of our world, if our world was characterized by a radical generosity, by radical purity, no more sexual abuse, no more uh, safe necessity for safe spaces for women because women and men feel safe in each other's company. No more uh, need for taxes and all sorts of ways to try and fight the human greed that is inside each one of us, but instead a, a, a world full of radical generosity. When we see Christ's kingdom and the beauty of it and we compare it with the ugliness of a world that is ravaged by sin, self-destruction, and the destruction of each other, when we see those two together, surely the cry of our hearts is, come, Lord Jesus. Let your kingdom come. Let your world be changed. This world needs your kingdom. What would your workplace look like 
What would your workplace look like if it, if it manifested these kingdom characteristics? If there was no ego, no sharp elbows pushing for promotion and trying to denigrate the contribution of others, but instead an, a radical honoring of others and their contributions, a generosity of spirit, a love for each other. Wouldn't your workplace look radically different? Wouldn't our world look radically different if these were the radical characteristics? This is what we're longing for. This is why you have an activist generation that is longing for equality and dignity and you know, uh, truthfulness in public life, as we've seen this week with the kind of sleaze accusations made in politics. This is where our heart starts by saying, God, we long for your kingdom because your kingdom is beautiful because you are the beautiful king. And so we say, oh, we want, I want to show you how our kingdom has to come when we're praying this prayer at four levels, or three levels, really. The individual level, the community level, the church, and then the, the global level, the, na- the nation. So first of all, the individual level. What you've got to hear is that when we pray this prayer, this is, before we even talk about out there, this is a call to personal submission, When we say, come, Lord Jesus, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, you can't pray this prayer for the world and just uh, leave your own life unchanged. Isn't that precisely what we see with our generation, a longing and desire for the world to be changed and activism and, and all sorts of things? But Jordan Peterson says you can't try and push for the world to be changed when you can't even tidy your own bedroom. There's a sense of a a radical disconnect. So easily we are longing for changing the world, but we don't see that the, the the change needs to start with us. You cannot say reign in the earth without saying reign in me. This is how uh, the writer N.T. Wright said it. If we really want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, we should expect, of course, that the earth in question will include this earth, this clay, this present physical body. So when you hear Christ inviting you to say in this prayer, uh, Lord, your kingdom come, you must hear it as a call to personal submission. A call to say, Lord, reign in me. I'm longing for your reign in my life. The problem is, it sounds simple. It sounds easy. We've got this one, surely. But it's much bigger than you realize. For it clashes with some of our deepest instincts. First of all, I think we can see this in the way that so often we're willing to make Christ the Christ of the crisis, the Christ of the crisis, rather than Christ our master. There's a sense to which we're so apt as Christians to, uh, some of you, I know this is true of you in your life, that you will use Christ when things get difficult. You will go to Christ and say, Lord, I'm in a crisis, I need you. But actually your life day to day doesn't have the characteristic of surrender of saying, Christ, you are my master. Christ is just the Christ of crisis and not the master of your life. The great temptation of the Christian life is using Christ, of saying, kind of playing lip service to Christ and using him a little bit like a genie in a bottle, a little bit like a genie in a lamp, sorry, like just coming to him for for your needs, but not living in a posture of radical surrender. And I can tell you that Christ will not take it. Christ will not tolerate that that superficial relationship. He will not tolerate just you coming to him and saying, Lord, Lord, I need you, when you haven't first said, Lord, Lord, I need your reign in my life. I submit to you. 
I think this, we see this in a kind of compartmentalized Christianity, a sense to which all of us in this day, in this moment, will say, hallowed be your name, Christ be the king of my life. All of us will, will, will on a Sunday, will, will say that very easily. But when it comes to the day-to-day, when the rubber hits the road and no one else is around, will you allow Christ into that part of your life? We are so apt to draw boxes in our lives and say, Christ, you're welcome here, you're welcome here, but not in my relationship. Not in my relationship with that non-Christian that I I know I shouldn't really be doing, but I'm going to keep doing it because this box is for me. Christ is Lord of that part of my life, but not this part of my life. The problem is Christ cannot be Lord of just part of your life. The concept of lordship requires that he is Lord of all or he is Lord of nothing. And if Christ is just Lord of part of your life, then actually you are the Lord of your life because you decide which parts he is Lord over and which parts he isn't. And actually, there's a good chance the bits you're not allowing Christ to be Lord of are actually things that you worship. So you don't worship Christ at all. You worship the thing that you're hanging on to with closed fists saying, Lord, this is my way. This part of my life, I'm going to decide. It's probably a sign that you worship that thing that you're not letting him have control of. So we see compartmentalized Christianity. We see Christ of the crisis. I think really... This really where the rubber hits the road for me when I see this passage is that it's not so much that I want his kingdom to come, it's why I want my kingdom to come. The reason why we can't pray your kingdom come is because we are inside our hearts saying, my kingdom come, my name be made great. Let me establish a name for myself or let me establish a little petty fiefdom, a little small area of the world, whether it's be my home or my workplace or some place where people listen to me and I am in some sense the king of that zone, of that domain. I have a kind of area of dominion or the rewards of being a king. Which one of us, in some sense, in our own hearts, don't see that there's a desire for reward? And when we say, your kingdom come, and when we think about actively surrendering our life to his purposes and being about his kingdom advancing, there's a part of us that just says, no, I'd really rather just my kingdom come and achieve my goals and my rewards that come with kingship rather than the sacrifice that is involved in advancing his kingdom. But don't we realize how insignificant we are? Don't we realize how, how our name, making our name great is just a, p- a tiny thing worth nothing compared to making the name of the Lord great? This is what we spoke about last week when he said, hallowed be your name. See the great Yahweh, the great name above all names. His name is the name that de- de- demands a kingdom, that demands a nation and a world worship it. Our name is nothing compared to the glory of his name. So what does this involve when we say personal submission? Well, I think it's a perpetual willingness to submit to Christ's voice, starting with a conviction that my life is not my own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you're talking about your body. He says, your body is not your own. Actually, your, your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. Your physical body You are not your own. Your life is not your own. It starts with a kind of standing assumption that I am not in control. And then it's a day-to-day working that perpetual submission to Christ's word, to seeing all sorts of desires in my heart that do not conform to Christ's lordship, to Christ's kingship, and embracing his voice, saying, Lord, come and cut off that desire in my life. What I'm saying is the kingdom... The king reigning in your life is not something that comes naturally to you. It will involve cutting off very natural desires within you. 
More than just a, a kind of begrudging willingness to cut off sinful patterns or desires that don't reckon, reflect Christ's reign in your life, it's joyfully embracing his reign, saying, Lord, I need your lordship in my life. I need you to be the king of my life. And I think this all really comes back to, do you desire the king? You can only say, Lord, reign in my life. You can only make Christ the sovereign of your life when you desire the king. The central question, I would argue, of the Christian life is the question that Jesus asks Peter at the end of John's gospel. The central question that everything hangs and falls on is when, you know, remember Peter has betrayed Christ. And what, are Christ, what is Christ's word? What is his question to Peter? says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Then he said to him the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You cannot desire Christ to be king of your life. You will not embrace his reign fully over your life. You will not seek to cut off desires that don't reflect his lordship and his reign unless... You love him, unless your heart is drawn towards him, unless you see his beauty, his purity, his mercy, his generosity, and say, you are captivating. I love you. Until you can say that, until you say you love him, until you felt his deep affection and commitment to you, until you've seen his eyes looking at you saying, I love you as I love you as I love you until you've heard his invitation like he came wandering out to look for the lost sheep and grabbed you and put you on his shoulders and took you back and rejoiced that he had you, until you hear his love for you, until you hear his personal invitation and his affection and his commitment to you, I don't think you can really surrender your life to him. I don't think you can live in a posture of day-to-day surrender until you feel genuine warmth and affection for Christ. And if you need to start here, you start at this level. Do you recognize him as your good shepherd? If not, this is impossible. Do you see Christ's glory? The other question I think this requires is to see Christ's glory. And I think one of the places I go when I want to see this is Psalm chapter 2. It's this beautiful psalm that describes how the the nations nations and rulers will, will raise their fists at the Lord and his king. But it describes this moment when they will all come and, 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 and they will see his glory. And it, and it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the, in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Hear this great invitation to come and kiss the son to see this glorious king who reigns over heaven and earth. And until you remember and see that glory, it's very difficult to say your kingdom come in my life. Christ is calling us to individual surrender. And until we take that posture, we cannot say your kingdom come. John Wesley put it like this. This is his prayer of surrender. He said, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. 
I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. That is the great cry of the Christian heart. And that is what I want to, I wonder if you can say that with him, with, with John Wesley. If you can't, you need to look at your heart for Christ. Second of all, a call for kingdom community. This is a call that we together would embody the beauty of Christ. We say, when we say, would your kingdom come, we are saying together, Christ, would you show your kingdom in us? What we might fail to see is that the church is the manifestation, is an outpost that demonstrates the beauty of Christ's kingdom. It's a tangible reminder that the kingdom is not pie in the sky for one day in the future, but the kingdom is now. And we show the world that the kingdom is now, that the kingdom has come by becoming a people who display the beauty of the kingdom, who display Christ's beauty in our community life together. And as we do that, we show people that this is, this, this is not just a kind of pipe dream for the future, but Christ has established his kingdom on this earth. You can show Christ's beauty on your own. As you go into a workplace and you demonstrate a countercultural love for your colleagues, a generosity of spirit, uh, an honouring of others, uh, uh, all the different ways that you might show Christ's character in your posture at work. But I think it's even more powerful when together, we as the people of God show a different character, show a different community, a community that represents the kingdom. The great danger, of course, is that we are a, ki- a church that just looks like everybody else. And if we are, if we, if we say this is what our culture is like, and our culture has the same um, sense of uh, lack of love towards each other that it's normal in our culture, or our church has uh, the same divisions and cliques that our culture might, typic- might have around ethnic lines or all sorts of other things, if we look like everybody else, then we're saying our king is just like all the other kings of the world. It's only when we show a distinctive kingdom culture that we show that our king is different. As we are generous with those in need. You remember in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, he talks about uh, how they shared with one another in need. They sold their possessions in order to provide for each other. As we embody a generous ethic together as the people of God and we seek to make sacrifices for each other in our time and our talents and all sorts of ways, we demonstrate that our king is fundamentally generous, so generous that he was willing to give his life. Whereas as we walk with a radical purity, as we seek to honour members of the opposite sex, as, as women and men feel safe in this church, we display the purity of Christ. Or as we show love, What is the defining characteristic of the kingdom? How will people know that you are part of the kingdom of God? Is that you have love for one another. As we seek not just to kind of use each other or just pass by each other, but actually intentionally love each other, intentionally make time for each other, intentionally invest our lives for each other, intentionally think about ways we can bless each other to help each other towards Christ, or just quite frankly, to show each other the love of Christ that's been put into our hearts. As we display and embody a love for each other, we will show the love of Christ in our, in our community. We'll show that the kingdom is not just a pipe dream, but is a real tangible reality now. So ask yourself of your life group, Is your life group a place of generous mercy or of cutting snide remarks at each other's expense? Is it a place of honour and upbuilding or a place of slightly 
awkward, just kind of doing a Bible study and then getting out of each other, getting out of each other's lives? Are you actually trying to love each other or are you just gathering in a place and having a good time? No, that's no bad thing, but Christ would call us to more. He would call us to lay down our lives for each other. And actually then mission becomes inviting people to see and to taste the goodness of God in this kingdom. That they would taste the goodness of his kingdom. As we invite our friends and our family into our community, we, as a community that carries the aroma of Christ. Think about Salt Live or all these carol service or different contexts we have where we have to invite people in. Will they taste the aroma of Christ in our community? Will they see something of his character embodied in our life together? That is the question. Because the kingdom always overflows. It, we love each other. We embody the mercy and generosity of Christ together. And then, we, and then the, we, the rest of the world comes in and tastes that as we seek to be merciful and gracious with, all, with our neighbors and our colleagues and all sorts of other ways. So it means embodying a kingdom community. When we say your kingdom come, we say, Christ, would you bring your kingdom in this place, in our culture together? Finally, it's a passion for the advance of his kingdom. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, establish your kingdom throughout the earth. The, the, the cry of the heart of this prayer is a longing for Christ's kingdom in this earth, to come, for the kingdom to come around us. If we see the beauty of the kingdom, if we see the beauty of Christ, how could we not desire that Christ would establish his reign in the whole earth? It's, I think really this means looking at the world with a combination of love and grief. We see the beauty of creation. We see the dignity and value of each of our neighbours, but we grieve for what could be. We see a community ravaged by sin. If we don't see this, it's because our eyes are switched off to that reality. It's because we've retreated to our own lives and our comfortable homes and we've just switched off to a world of need around us. I just switched on for a moment on the tube yesterday. Saw people all dressed up, ready to probably perhaps even give themselves, in a, uh, give, their, their, give themselves away to a stranger in return for some moment of fleeting affection on the tube at seven o'clock last night, ready to going out for a night out. How easy it is to switch off to that reality and to say, actually, no, Christ values you more than you value yourself at this point. He loves you and says you have worth and you don't need to do this. Or those who would go out and try and escape reality. Or car- uh, and actually, no, we say, no, you don't need to escape reality because Christ's reality is much more beautiful, much more attractive, much more satisfying than the reality that you're living in. We failed to connect the kingdom of God with, the, Greek, with the, the problems that we see in our world. When we see people carrying shame, we know the Christ, the great undefiler who comes to destroy shame. When we see a world riven by anxiety, we know Christ, the Prince of Peace, who came to bring and establish peace on this earth and bring an end to anxiety. When we see injustice, we, we know we worship the great king who will one day reign with full justice. We fail to connect the great kingdom of God as the answer to our world's greatest problems. When we see the beauty of the king, we say the only thing, the number one thing our world needs is the king of glory, the king of peace. So when we say, Lord, king, your kingdom come, it's not just a prayer, 
It's a longing to be, it's a desire, a willingness to be involved in Christ's kingdom coming on this world. It's like a a mission statement of the people of God saying, your kingdom come through me, through us. Would you advance your kingdom through this people? It's not just a, a prayer, a statement. It's a commitment, a choice to be involved in bringing Christ's kingdom in this world. So often I feel like the church is a sleeping army. So often I feel like the church is switched off from this great goal of advancing Christ's kingdom in this earth. Why, why do we do this? Well, I think firstly, because it's costly. We'd rather retreat into a corner of our lives and forget about the world. What we forget is that Christ's kingdom advances in cost. This is the great king who was enthroned as he was crucified. The kingdom is costly. If you're saying, I don't want to advance the kingdom with my life, I don't want to lay down my life in pursuit of the kingdom advancing, I would say, actually, you're right to see the cost. There is a cost in laying down your life for Christ's name. But isn't his name worth it? Isn't he worth that cost of advancing his kingdom? Or maybe we say we don't have enough. We say, I don't have enough to offer. I can't really do anything to advance the kingdom. Don't we remember the story of the boy with the loaves and the fish? He had nothing And yet Christ feeds thousands. Christ takes our meager offerings, our small contributions, and he multiplies it, and he brings his supernatural kingdom. Or maybe we say we don't know what it looks like. Because when we hear Christ establishing his kingdom, it doesn't feel like his kingdom is established. What we've got to see is that Christ's kingdom comes life by life, individual by individual. Christ's kingdom advances through individuals recognizing and embracing him as king. You see this in the Gospels. Christ announces his kingdom and then individuals, tax collectors, uh, prostitutes, um, religious leaders, different people, life after life, turn to Christ and embrace him as king. So perhaps it advances slower than you think. Perhaps it doesn't feel particularly glamorous to advance his kingdom. But if in doubt, what does it mean to advance Christ's kingdom? It means to invest your life in people. People are the mission and the mission are people. If in doubt, what does this mean? What does this look like for me? Pour yourself out for people. Pour yourself out for your friend who doesn't know Christ and show them a different life. Show them mercy. Show them sacrifice. Show them generosity. Tell them your story. If, if uh, perhaps for some of us it will involve helping to birth the kingdom of God in individuals' lives, of spending time on the salt course or salt live or finding different contexts to speak to those who have been drawn towards the person of Christ. For some of us it will involve just helping others to work out the kingdom of God in every part of their lives and talking with our Christian friends and helping them to embrace Christ's great kingdom reality in their lives. For some of us, for many of us, it involved investing our talents and our gifts in the life of the church, which is God's great vehicle for bringing his kingdom in the world. For others, it will involve demonstrating the mercy of Christ, of serving, finding ways to serve our neighbors and those in need. For all of us, it will involve giving ourselves away for the advance of Christ's kingdom, for the advance of his name and the full reign of Christ in our city Because it starts with us saying together, Lord, reign in London as you reign in heaven. This is the central movement of history. Don't mistake a life of significance and success for the wrong things, in the wrong things, for a life of investing yourself in this great significant movement of history, the movement of history.
So we cry out, Lord, come establish your kingdom in this city and use us to advance your kingdom. And finally, it's a call for Christ's return. When we say, Lord, your kingdom come, we are looking at a world of brokenness, we're looking at suffering, and we are groaning with creation. In Romans 8, it says, We know the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There is a cry in the people of God who together groan with creation and say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come and establish your reign on the earth. There's a sense of groaning and a healthy sense of optimism. Because Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. As we see a broken world, as we're tempted to despair, we look forward to Christ's return with a confident hope that one day the great King of Kings The great Lord of Lords will come riding in and will come to establish his throne in victory and he will wipe away every tear. He will bring an end to injustice, an end to suffering, an end to evil, an end to human abuse, an end to idolatry, an end to all the great messiness of your heart that you see inside yourself. We are saying Christ is coming to reign. And so when we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, we say it with a twinkle in our eye, saying, Lord, you're you're bringing your kingdom on this earth. You're establishing this earth now. Would you do it in my life? And one day you are coming to establish your kingdom on this earth. And that is a wonderful reality that we hold on to. So let's be a people who cry out with Christ, Lord, your kingdom come, who surrender to the king because he is beautiful because he's the Lord of lords and he is the crucified king who is willing to lay down his life for us, who embody the beauty of the king in our community, who don't settle just to be another group of people who look like everybody else, but say, no, we carry the kingdom of God. We carry his beauty in our community, who call out, come Lord Jesus, and give ourselves to the great movement of history of advancing his kingdom in the earth, who lay our lives down for others and who groan and look forward with hope. This is the great cry of the people of God. Should we do that? Should we cry out with Christ, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, your earth as, on earth as it is in heaven. This is our great mantra. This is our great song, brothers and sisters. The guys are going to come up and, worship, um, and lead us. I would suggest that the first thing we have a moment to do here is a moment to do business with God in our hearts to say to him, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. Maybe I don't see that desire in my heart, but I want to want it, to ask him that he might bring that in our own hearts and then to ask him how, how, what work he wants to do in you, what he, what's he's putting his finger on, that he might lead you to be a person who sings, who longs, who cries out, Lord, your kingdom come in my life. Let me pray. Lord, you know our own hearts. You know how fickle we are and how easy it is that we have gone about our lives without reference to your kingdom. How we don't cry out with Christ, your kingdom come. And we want to be people who cry out, Lord, your kingdom come. 
We want to cry with you for this nation and for this city and for our world that you would come and bring change in people's lives, that you would advance your kingdom through us. We want to start by surrendering to you, Lord. We want to start by saying you are our king. Would you reign in every part of our lives? And we want to say, Lord, come. Come and reign in this city. Come and reign in this nation. Come and change lives and use us to advance your kingdom for your glory. Amen.